We're about to hear from the Bible. Uh, It's Psalm 103, God's word to us, and it encourages us to praise the Lord because of his compassion and grace. Thanks, Vicky. And this is found on page 595 in the church Bibles. Verses 1 to 12. Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being, Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, So far has he removed our transgressions from us. The second reading this morning is from page 976 in the Pew Bible, Matthew 20, 1 to 16. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. About the eleventh hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired about the eleventh hour came and each received a denarius. So when those who... So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you. 
don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. If you'd keep your Bibles open there. I've uh, had many happy occasions of tearing up uh, over this weekend and thank you for Sean for the privilege of being here. Uh, it's lovely to see uh, Dave up here with the kids doing the kids song. Uh, I think David was in year eight probably with Lauren. Were you the same year at school? Yeah, when I arrived and, and now he has a daughter about the same age as ours when we left. And it's great to see some things are still the same with kids' song for the kids. Uh, Let's pray, same prayer as yesterday, if you're there. Heavenly Father, grant us a greater grasp on your grace that we might give grace to others. For Jesus Christ's sake, amen. In Philip Yancey's provocative book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he quotes a Christian counsellor who said, the two major causes of most emotional problems amongst evangelical Christians are these, the failure to understand, receive and live out God's unconditional grace and forgiveness and the failure to give that unconditional forgiveness and grace to other people. He says we read, we hear, we believe a good theology of grace, but it's not the way we live. And Would you agree with that? I can't tell you if they are really the two greatest problems. There are other towering issues in our day, depression and anxiety. and But certainly a failure to understand God's forgiveness and the failure to give others forgiveness are things we all Christians struggle with. I see it in a thousand little offences that we feel we're enduring at the hands of others, colleagues and neighbours, parishioners and relatives. I see it in our critical spirit and grumpiness. I see it sometimes when Christians change churches or drop out altogether. And I see it in my own self-righteousness and impatience with others. And so that brings us to Matthew 20 from verse 1 and to the crazy maths of grace. That's also Philip Yancey's phrase, not much original with me. Uh, Picks up the oddity of Jesus' teachings if you approach them with an accountant's mindset. Uh, And unlike Karajong in my day... uh, We've got a lot of accountants in the gong. Uh, Crazy maths. You remember how Mary wasted half a litre of perfume worth more than a year's wages to anoint Jesus' feet, which could have been sold to help the poor. The widow who put 10 cents into the temple treasury wouldn't make it worth changing your bank accounts over, would it? And Jesus said she put in more than all those with their $100 notes going into the collection plate. Yancey's point in calling this crazy maths is to say these teaching make no sense from a bean counter's point of view. But that's the amazing grace of God. Today's Bible reading records a parable told by Jesus which seems economically indefensible but which demonstrates grace. And that word is perhaps the most popular piece of Christian jargon of all. Grace before meals? The girl's name? No, we know it's defined as God's undeserved kindness grace is getting what you don't deserve an unmerited gift any card carrying bible believing christian can give you a definition like that most of us know what it means in our heads 
But Jesus' parable suggests we may not always remember it in our hearts because too often we balk at its implications for others. So let's look at Matthew 20 and from verse 1 where Jesus tells of a farmer who hires labourers. Verse 1, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. The blokes here are the casuals, uh, seasonal labourers, a bit like the backpackers who follow the fruit-picking trail through Australia. Uh, They're unsure from day to day whether they'll have work. Some of the labourers here clock on at sunrise, and verse 2, it's agreed they'll be paid the standard rate for a day's labour. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. Fair day's pay for a fair day's work, the basic principle of industrial relations. Then some clock on at morning smoko, and the boss says he'll pay them fairly too. Verse 3, about the third hour he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, you also go and work in my vineyard and I'll pay you whatever is right. So they went. He hires some at lunch hour and then some at Arvo T. Verse 5, he went out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. It could be the farmer notices that the sun is especially intense and the grapes are ripening too fast. Harvest is at the stage he cannot afford to leave them on the vine any longer. Or maybe he sees a, a storm coming. I still remember the bloke with that gun he fired to try and make the hail go away. Whatever, he needs to get the harvest off as quick as possible. And so verses 6 and 7, he even finds more workers to start at the 11th hour, just an hour before knock-off at sunset. And everyone's happy until pay packet time, verse 9. The workers who are hired about the 11th hour came and each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first came, they expected to receive more but each one of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. The conscientious workers toiled 12 hours through blazing sun when they learned that Johnny-come-latelys who barely raised a sweat in that last cool hour of the day were paid as much as them, they were peeved. What those last blokes got is as far as you can get from the Aussie ideal of that fair day's pay for a fair day's work. Now, I want you to make no mistake because there was apparently another version of this story floating around in those days from some of the rabbis. And in that version, the latecomers work mega hard for that hour and the boss is so impressed he gives them the full day's work, uh, the full day's pay. But Jesus is not saying you can somehow clock on late on the day with God and achieve as much as the early birds if you just work extra hard at being good. Go back with me. You might have noticed I skipped reading verses 6 and 7. We see in Jesus' version, this is a case of bludgers being rewarded. About the 11th hour, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one's hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. They're twiddling their thumbs. It's only bludgers who do that during harvest time. It's easy to get work. Plenty is on. These blokes, I think they must have been smoking cigarettes behind the shed or something to avoid getting hired. This boss contradicts everything we know about economics. Now, you could perhaps 
say maybe he's got an excessive concern for the welfare of others because he knew casual labouring was insecure and men such as these sometimes would have had families who would not eat that night unless they brought home some money from the day and it's like charity. And This farmer's policy, however, is certainly no good for employee motivation. His regular workers, will sc- they are screaming. It's atrocious economics. The bean counters would protest as much as the unionists. No one in his right mind would agree to an enterprise bargain like this. You know, I I understand we're not allowed to call anyone a bludger these days. So as the modern politician might say, too much carrot, not enough stick with these industrial relations. So what exactly is Jesus teaching in this story? It's there on your outline. It's that grace does not equal wages. To sum it up in a sentence... It's this, you can't calculate God's grace like wages. Not for yourself, not for others. You can't calculate God's grace like wages for yourself or for others. Jesus' story makes no mathematical sense. It's exactly what he intended. His verse 1 intro says the kingdom of heaven is like the landowner in this story and as you hear the parable, it becomes clear the employer is supposed to represent God in his grace see how the boss explains his actions at the end verse 13 but he answered one of them friend I'm not being unfair to you didn't you agree to work for a denarius take your pay and go I want to give the man who was hired last the same as I gave you don't I have the right to do what I want with my own money or are you envious because I'm generous It's all about generosity. And the goodness of this generosity is what we call grace. The hard-working employees feel the boss hasn't been fair. Seeing his generosity to the latecomers, they forget their agreement and expected more. But the employer didn't cheat the full-day workers. They got exactly what they were promised, and it was fair. God is never less than fair and just. But he is often more than that. And that's where the discontent arose. They can't handle their boss's generosity. Can't accept that he can do what he likes with his money to the extent of playing bludgers 12 times what they deserved. Jesus' point was exactly that. God's grace can't be calculated like a day's wages. And Jesus practices what he preaches too. Do you remember the two men crucified next to him? Uh, Listen to Luke 23 from verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man's done nothing wrong. And he said to him, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Our Luke calls him a criminal. Uh, We mostly call him the thief on the cross, the traditional translation following Matthew and Mark. Although the word they use could also be translated rebel, insurgent, 
Same word John used to describe Barabbas who'd killed someone in an uprising. Terrorist. Whatever his exact crime, the thief on the cross knew a death sentence was what he deserved. But in desperation, at the last moment, he owned up to a a life wasted in rebellion against God and Jesus forgave him unconditionally. To put it bluntly, in God's economy, a deathbed conversion is quite legitimate. I remember that as how uh, Bob Furlow's dad came to Christ near the end of my time at Carajong, lying in the hospital down at Windsor, Bob visiting him every, every day. So weak, he could barely speak, but he bowed to Christ in hospital. And you want qualifications like, oh, don't be naive. Is it really sincere? No, sure, double check in a pastoral conversation. Ultimately, friends, don't we leave it up to God to judge the sincerity? One of the most interesting stories I've read about is Henry Gerricker. Gerricker was a World War II US Army chaplain. Two of his sons were also wounded fighting in Germany. After the war, he visited the Dachau concentration camp. There he said, my hand touching a wall was smeared with the human blood seeping through. In November 1945, he was assigned a most difficult task. Gerricke was sent to Nuremberg. His job? Chaplain to the Nazis on trial there for war crimes. The US Army selected Gerricke for three reasons. First, he was bilingual and spoke German. Second, he had pre-war experience in prison ministry. And third, he was Lutheran, and 15 of the 21 Nazis on trial were nominally Lutheran. His CO said he could avoid the assignment by seeking a discharge pleading his old age, his advanced age. And Gerricke hadn't seen his wife for more than two years. He was revolted by the Nazis. But he asked for a couple of days to pray it over. He said, slowly, the men at Nuremberg became to me just lost souls whom I was being asked to help. So he went. Prisoners included Luftwaffe chief Hermann Goring, the chief German military commander, Field Marshal Keitel, Foreign Minister von Ribbentrop, Minister of Armaments, Albert Speer, and Fritz Saukel, the head of labour supply, who oversaw the working to death of millions of slave labourers. Some of them refused to attend chapel, but at the end of Gerricke's first service, Saukel asked to see him in his cell. Saukel begged Gerricke to read the Bible and pray with him. Saukel prayed beside his bedside and ended with these words. Some of you know where they come from. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. In the weeks that followed, Sauker was given his own Bible and Luther's catechism. Gerricke worked with him until he was satisfied Sauker was a broken man over what he'd done. Now, no restitution was possible. But Gerricke was convinced Sauker trusted in Christ as Saviour. In his written report on his work, Gerricke insisted, I'd had many years' experience as a prison chaplain 
And I do not believe I'm easily deluded by phony reformations. Note, at the 11th hour. Over the next year, eight former Nazis, including Speer, Keitel and Ribbentrop, were admitted to Holy Communion. Most of them were found guilty and some were executed. Ribbentrop was the first of the gallows. An American officer asked his last words and Ribbentrop responded, I place all my confidence in the Lamb who made atonement for my sins. May God have mercy on my soul. And he turned to Gerricka and said, I'll see you again. Now, friends, I've had a similar kind of conversation with a member of Prison Fellowship Australia regarding the apparent sustained conversion of one of the killers of Anita Cobby. It's hard to cope with the idea that God would forgive a violent rapist if he claims to repent and believe in Jesus. Imagine your daughter as a victim. Can you relate to the person who said, crimes that bad can never be forgiven? Wouldn't be fair. Well, of course, that's what the hard workers in Jesus' parable thought too. That's the point. Like most Muslims I've met, some Christians have the image of a mathematical God. Totting it up, weighs up your good and bad deeds on the set of scales and passing all depends on which way the balance tips. Maybe you feel God's always finding you wanting. Or maybe you feel, oh, the scales will tip my way. You might even rate yourself for credit. And you think God would certainly fail those types of sin that you judge to be particularly bad. That's not the Bible. It's not the Bible. Jesus says you can't calculate God's grace on a calculator like a day's wages. Not for yourself, not for others. God dispenses gifts, not wages. I quoted yesterday, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Back in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul put it this way. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who doesn't work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. The wages of sin is death. If you want to get paid according to merit, all of us that end up in hell, for none of us comes close to satisfying God's just requirements for a perfect life. But God offers us forgiveness as a gift. And he can do it with justice because Jesus took the wages earned by sinners like you and me on the cross where the innocent died for the guilty. The Bible says that by dying in our place, Christ paid the price for us. God didn't turn a blind eye to sin. Rather, he acted with justice and love. His son faced the anger at our sin and paid the costliest penalty we deserved. Don't you think God is generous? And not just with us, but others.
surely then it's not impossible to believe Ribbentrop or Sauckel find grace at the end of their lives. Not if we believe the parables of Jesus. Not if we believe Paul doing the Lent studies at Bishop Piper, who's retired energetically part-time with us at Wollongong. Read 1 Timothy 1 this week. Verse 13, Paul confessed he'd been, quote, a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. But verse 14, the grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly. He knew comfortable saying of the communion service, verse 15, the trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Communion service chops off the last bit because Paul adds, of whom I'm the worst. And therefore, there's grace for us all. No matter what you've done, What have you done that we don't know? What might you do if the circumstance was right? Well, friends, the worst crime in the history of the world was the murder of the Son of God. And yet Jesus himself prayed for the forgiveness of his executioners. And if any one of those soldiers came to faith, they would have been forgiven. There is no human evil so great It can't be covered by the infinite righteousness, even at the last. And so, yes, even a Nazi can repent of his horrendous sin. You can turn to Christ and be saved. The slate wiped clean, completely forgiven. For murder, for rape, for abuse. Just as much as for your selfishness, greed, deceit, gossip that secret porn habit, for adultery with body or mind, for angry words and for ignoring God. Jesus tops and tails his story with a parable, uh, with a proverb. It's easy to miss. Just before chapter 20, the end of chapter 19, verse 30, but many who are first will be last And many who are last will be first. And then see how he concludes his parable, verse 16. So the last will be first, the first will be last. Seems to matter, doesn't it? The crazy maths of grace. I know we've come a long way this morning, but just stay with me. Many churchgoers identify with the employee who puts in the full day's work rather than the lazy latecomers. We, we do like to think of ourselves as responsible workers. You know, some of us have grown up in the church from childhood. We turn up now, we work hard for Christ, we love our families, we, we try to do the right thing. And, you know, even if you've been converted later in life, it's easier to think of ourselves as the lunchtime, the, the three o'clocker, not the last minute rush job. Dear friends, thinking that way is the way some of the first end up last. We're actually... You've failed to receive grace when you're thinking God dispenses eternal life like a boss paying wages. If Jesus spoke to Australians today, he might well say, how hard is it for the middle class to enter the kingdom of God? Because we see ourselves as ethical, tolerant, decent. 
the hard worker in the parable. Surely that's good enough for God. Uh Uh-uh, says Jesus. You don't understand kingdom maths. We end up last by thinking wages instead of grace. If you're to be open to God's grace, stop thinking of yourself as near the top. It is so sad, friends, when people out there get the impression Christians think they're better than others. That's how we end up last. And on the other hand, there's a warning here about holding back grace from others. People can end up last by failing to give grace. We restrict it from others. as It's grace for me, but wages for them. After his death, Garrick's son found this thick pile of letters. His father had hidden it in a secret compartment in his desk because he didn't want to see his kids seeing this. The letters were postmarked from all over the USA and they called his father's names, everything. Jew hater, Nazi lover, should have been hanged at Nuremberg with the rest of them. It's the attitude that thinks there's certain groups, there's certain categories outside the scope of God's grace. Drug pushers. Maybe you've had a son or daughter taken by drugs. Right-wing racists. Militant Muslims. And liberal bishops. Can't cope with the possibility they might repent. If push, we say, well, if they really, truly proved it, but our negative attitudes, our scepticism, well, that makes it highly unlikely because the lines of communication are closed tight. Evangelicals sometimes fail to act with the grace we preach towards such people. A friend of mine tried to share Christ with a homosexual flatmate. This man was actually unhappy in his homosexuality. The guy's prior interactions with Christians had convinced him that he he couldn't approach Christ until he'd stopped being a homosexual and somehow got rid of all his deep-rooted struggles with what were mostly unwanted feelings. Somehow the gospel message had been reversed. He thought he'd had to become good to become a Christian. Didn't understand Romans 5 verse 8. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were... Still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, Jesus didn't wait for any of us to clean up our act. And people like that homosexual flock towards Jesus, but sadly, sometimes they flee his church. And what part do you ever play in it? Do I play in it by our judgmentalism, by a careless joke or a a look of disgust? Does our prejudice ever make it seem like God's grace is restricted? just to those who measure up. The Bible tells of an adulterous murderer who gained the reputation as the Old Testament's greatest king. Of a church led by a disciple who disowned Jesus three times just as Jesus would have most liked him near. And a missionary recruited from the ranks those who tortured Christians. David, Peter, 
And Paul, God forgave them all. And if he forgave them, he can forgive you too. Friends, rejoice you cannot calculate God's grace like wages. Not for yourself and not for others.